Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, today we will be talking to Mimi Rangaswamy, an experienced anthropologist with a fascinating journey in the technology space. She has studied technology in academia, but also worked with it in the applied business sector, having worked for companies such as Microsoft Research and Xerox. In today's episode, we will be talking to Nimi about why some people consider technology evil and she doesn't, how people make technology their own rather than the other way around. We will be talking about access to technology and ethics of using technology. We will also be talking about her experience of working in the business sector as an applied anthropologist and what is the value of using an anthropologist um, to advance technological knowledge. This is a fascinating dive into the Indian market and the relationship of its consumers with technology. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Nimi. Hi. <laughs> so just to go right right into it, um, our first question has to do with how would you define simply um, technology and anthropology? Yeah, yes. Um, uh, technology is something so broad. Mm-hmm. Uh, the table and the chair I'm sitting in is also also qualifies as technology. But uh, uh, thinking about the technology that surrounds you today, for me, technology has become synonymous with uh, digital technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, those are the technologies I work in. And um, uh, in India, probably digital technologies are not necessarily urban because the penetration of mobile phones and um, and data mm-hmm. has penetrated fairly well into the peri-urban and uh, parts of rural uh, India. Uh, so for me, I think technology is has gone digital mm-hmm. a long time ago. And that's where I would situate uh, my own work in too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and to talk about anthropology, for me, anthropology is something that affords a unique perspective one that uh, possibly other disciplines do not because uh, anthropology is the only kind of domain that affords you an immersion into the fields you are researching, right? You're not mm-hmm. sitting in a lab. You're not sitting in your armchair. You have to get out of that armchair, get out there, be out there, participate, observe, immerse, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. So this this is what also handicaps anthropology because uh, for an outsider this seems extremely kind of strange risky (laughs) and uh, also very very difficult Mm -hmm. right to go out there and put yourself amongst the people you're researching but for me that is what affords the unique perspective the perspective to slip into the shoes of the person you're researching Mm -hmm. and for me um, that is something that uh, that is uh, that is unparalleled anywhere and uh, very, very um, precious and uh, and affords a researcher with unique capabilities. Tell a bit our listeners and also us a bit more about your path, um, both with digital okay. technology and anthropology. Yes, uh, mine was quite a strange path. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I've done anthropology all my life. 
you know, I started out uh, as an undergrad, uh, specializing in anthropology. That was in uh, the University of Madras. Now it's called Chennai in South India. Um, I specialized in anthropology again in my master's. And I went on. So, uh, so I was kind of groomed in an anthropology mm-hmm. that was also in some sense quite um, uh, fiercely academic. Um, and because I did it in Delhi, my uh, higher studies, it was also pro-left, um, uh, very anti-right. Uh, and I was groomed uh, mm-hmm. in post-structuralist um, philosophy and logic like it was in the 80s. And the early 90s. Yes. I'm a late baby boomer. Yeah. So I never grew with the digital technologies. Can, can you explain so, just very, very shortly what post-structuralism is? Just for our, for our yeah, speakers. Okay. That... Uh, sure, sure. Yeah. Post, uh, post-structuralism is, uh, is a kind of theory um, uh, that uh, went, on to de- uh, went on to deconstruct structuralism itself. Structuralism was a theory uh, which was French in origin and looked at the world more formally, right? Mm-hmm. As a binary, like if you're looking at family, uh, a structuralist would essentially compare it with something that is non-familial, say something that is more wild and not domesticated, right? Mm-hmm. So you begin to evolve a theory through contrasts and through more formal methods. So that was structuralism. It is pretty technical, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, probably it appeals to only people who are studying that domain, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and post-structuralism, was something that wanted to go beyond the structuralist logic of looking at the world more formally, you know. And uh, it went on to study processes, social processes, how um, uh, life unfolds and things like that, mm-hmm. right? It was, it, uh, in, in that sense, it was looking, it was like, uh, as you said, somebody mentioned Foucault. Uh, post, uh, Foucault was a classic post-structuralist. He would look at the processes by which Um, probably a theory that was developed by a structuralist actually worked on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, most post-structuralists were uh, quite left and it came from Marxism Mm -hmm. because Marx was profoundly in that way dividing and and compartmentalizing society and classes, right? Uh, So that was the the kind of theory I was groomed in. Mm -hmm. So, and, uh, and, uh, but somehow as the world you know, as a whole, uh, the entire Cold War um, uh, kind of crumbled and you saw what Russia was actually is, you know, uh, uh, the, the faith in Marxism and so begin to wane, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a time when you realized you needed something else to understand the world around you and the transformations that were happening so rapidly. And then came technology, the internet, etc., and which has completely changed how we live, Right. Uh, for me, luckily, uh, it was also a time when India was globalizing and opening up the late 90s and the early 20s when I was finishing my uh, PhD. My PhD was in, um, uh, was in print media. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I, I look at it as a connection, right? Because, I was, um, because I'm still working with digital media and stuff like that. So it's some strange kind of connection I feel to my PhD, though it happened in a different era. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, so in the 20s, all these multinational labs started uh, entering uh, India, uh, companies and research labs. And I was hired by one such re- research lab, Microsoft, the Microsoft Research Labs in Bangalore. And that completely changed my perspective 
not only about how to do anthropology in India, being hired by a multinational giant, software giant, but also looking at businesses, looking at market economy with new eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and how technology becomes the centerpiece here. I, I grew up in an academia which suspected science, which looked at technology with suspicion. And by the end of, say, 10 years of my PhD, I'm, I'm, I'm a different person looking at <laughs> technology, you know, and, uh, you know, it was not all hunky-dory because some of my academic friends uh, thought I had betrayed, Mm. you know, the cause of academia and what I learned and went against it. But I I want to assuage myself and others that uh, I'm very much using the skills I'm trained for, very Mm. much using those theoretical constructs I, I kind of went through for so many years in my life studying. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not about um, that I've changed and I've become this different person, a different anthropologist. No, I'm using my technique. I'm using my knowledge. It's just that I am looking at the world anew. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people that are listening in might have the same view of technology as something that changes us for the <laughs> worse rather for the better. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Why, why do you think people have that um, attitude towards technology? And according to your experience with working with technology, what would you yeah. say to that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, by, uh, by a social, I mean, by people, I mean, I meant, uh, I mean, people with the social science mm-hmm. training. Right. Yeah. Uh, one way of looking at it is how uh, society hierarchizes knowledge. Right. Yeah, we are living in a world that is extremely um, geared towards uh, fundamental sciences, the hard sciences, mathematical sciences, then computational sciences, then software engineering. And then comes the social sciences. That is the world we are living in today, whether we like it or not. Right. Mm-hmm. So that hierarchy produces this. There's some kind of hostility, I think, personally, between these knowledge systems. That is one, you know. Mm -hmm. Secondly, because science has overtaken uh, the prime space, not only in academia, also in life, right? Um, In in my family, if you're you're a computer scientist, you are considered to be a a far brighter, smarter person than if you are an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. right? But, But it's different that I have become this famous person and I'm earning more than my uh, my um, uh, probably uh, my cousins and relatives who are computer scientists is a different matter right probably it's busting all these myths in a small way Mm -hmm. but the world remains still geared towards technology and sciences so probably that is producing some hostility and also the way science enters into the discourse in sociology and social sciences and anthropology is like something that is invasive Right. Something that intervenes um, unwittingly into the lives of people and controls them. Science is looked at as control. Right. And it and it feeds very well into Foucauldian theories and post-structuralist theories that analyzes power in the Mm -hmm. microcosms of society. You know, Mm -hmm. so this is why I feel this big doubt Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and this big suspicion exists between um, social scientists, the way they look at the other sciences, especially computational yeah. and mathematical sciences. I think this point that you you are making now fits really well into our next questions, with, which has to do with the relationship people build with technology and what mm-hmm. is the power dynamics between them and, and that technology. Looking into your own projects and how you work with technology, mm-hmm. what would you say is the nature of that relationship? 
Yes. Uh, you know, uh, but uh, I am biased. I'm a tech optimist, you know, <laughs> Some, because I, I feel technology has come and changed my mm-hmm. life. And uh, it's, it'll be a cliche to say that uh, when world was getting more impersonal, separated by distances, even within an urban city, technology comes and connects you. That is a cliche, but it has so much truth in it. My Facebook page is filled with connections, starting from my childhood to somebody, but people, young, young people like you, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So this is this is something that amazes me. And this is, and we, and somewhere in, uh, when we are so steeped in academia, we forget uh, what is human nature. And we begin to question all these kind of, you know, um, uh, hegemonic way of understanding human nature, society, so on and so forth. But human nature is something that is dictating you still, right? We are biological um, beings, right? So I feel this connectedness is something that technology has brought in. I mean, we may, we may differ in the way we define connection, right? So I, I, I begin from that position. I'm quite an optimist. And I also believe that internet technologies and web 2 technologies has brought an agency with a vengeance mm-hmm. back into the user's life. Now, talking about my own experience, you know, I I was also filled with all these notions about technology dominance. I was unsure (laughs) about what are these things that are slowly overtaking me, etc., etc., right? Mm -hmm. But then being an anthropologist, you get to the field there. You talk to people out there, you know, that is what has changed my perspective. And uh, I began by, because I worked in the field of uh, technology and development. Uh, uh, it, was, it is called ICTD, Information and Communication Technologies for Development. The, that was the domain which, uh, which was spearheaded by the Microsoft Research Labs I was working in, in India. And the whole idea was to look at resource poor settings and how technology fitted into these, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, uh, so when I, uh, my, my, I went to the rural areas, I looked at uh, rural internet kiosks, then I studied urban cyber cafes, then I went into the slums and looked at what people were doing with digital technology. So th- this remains my early kind of uh, research uh, for um, businesses, for companies, right? And that is where you realize how people... Um, Whatever they are, whatever kind of capacities they have in life, make technologies their own, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They are not dictated by, by the people designing them in the Silicon Valley mm-hmm. or elsewhere, right? Can you Technology give some examples um, yes. of what you've seen? Sure, sure. Sure. Take uh, Facebook, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, the, way, um, the way young people use Facebook in, in, say, the urban slums in India, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, um, but uh, this is uh, not something that is simply uh, brought on by users. Um, it is also uh, how the market has evolved to uh, integrate them. Now, in India, you had this big revolu- telecom revolution in India, which cut up um, uh, the whole uh, notion of uh, internet as as real estate, right? You can buy internet like you could buy a pizza, right? You can <laughs> okay. buy, you can spend a few pennies mm-hmm. for the internet and buy it for a day. This happened, say, maybe ten years ago, maybe eight, eight to ten years ago. India was the first country which fragmented this whole market, right? So these kids were buying internet and using them, and they, they, they and in 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 a day, they were they were part of the generation of internet users simply because the market uh, stru- uh, structured its price points around these users right 
so that um, that uh, that gave them the agency to use and disconnect and connect etc so on and so forth um, uh, the way they wanted right and once internet came into their lives nobody is going to tell them how to use it yeah so uh, in fact uh, some of my papers that studied how these young people were using facebook okay you must be wondering what, what has facebook got to do with urban slum children mm-hmm. because they were living in these communities that they knew so well right mm-hmm. but the but the way they understood facebook was uh, going global right mm-hmm. trying to connect with those people who were not a part of their ecosystems who were not part of their own habitats mm-hmm. so they became these globalized people who became part of a global internet community right um and um, yeah, that was amazing how they tweaked their timelines right how they were using timelines what kind of photos they were uploading who were they trying to attract what kind of women they were hitting on right mm-hmm. through facebook right mm-hmm. and how they evolved their own understanding of facebook right for them facebook was a space which helped them uh, explore worlds which they could never have and the ways they were doing it mm-hmm. yeah so for me i mean taking facebook and making it their own they are not interested in what uh, in mark zuckerberg's vision of facebook yeah <laughs> yeah they were interested in their own visions mm-hmm. of what they wanted to do with facebook suppose they were able to connect with a girl in london mm-hmm. and they were able to have exchange phone phone numbers and able to chat with her that was facebook for them yeah right so uh, this is one example of how uh, um, um users were uh, using their own kind of lived experiences to shape technologies around them. Mm. And and at that time in India was Facebook um interested in exploring that like if if you know like were they interested in understanding uh, the immersed experiences of 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 the local culture? Yeah, you know uh, that is interesting because uh, Facebook had uh, gotten in touch with me in India to give talks and other things. Mm-hmm. But the problem is I I have a feeling that Facebook is using uh consultants um in india to understand uh this is my uh, whatever i could gather they were hiring people uh, i mean people who 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 uh, act as um, ethnographers yes you know consultants um, uh, who could help them uh, understand these stories uh, in the ground right mm-hmm. so those kinds of things they were doing but uh, somehow i feel facebook is not really serious about understanding uh, their biggest resource base you know uh, they they i think they should invest more you know hire uh, more anthropologists who could understand mm-hmm. india and kind of broker yeah. this understanding for them uh, maybe i don't know maybe their priority is not to understand india user base they are more interested in a vision for uh, global facebook uh, facebook as a news feed and so on and so forth right mm-hmm. after all that is the uh, 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 company is shaped more by the vision of its leaders than what is happening on the ground yeah. you know did you have a different Which, experience uh, in microsoft uh microsoft uh, microsoft is a different uh, company you know uh, uh, microsoft research began in 1992 i think in seattle the idea was to set up a world class research lab uh, where it would partner with academia and also push the frontiers of computer science right so it was a kind of killing two birds it was uh, trying to become this big research um probably research center mm-hmm. along with uh, uh, pushing research for its own benefit right it, it could do both 
it could uh, it could develop an image uh, as uh, as a company that invested in scientific research and also used that scientific research yes. for its own future mm-hmm. right uh, which it was um, i'm not sure how successful microsoft was in that you know it 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 is it is still a lab to reckon with it has turing award winners and it has a lot of papers to its credit it has pushed frontiers of research all those things mm-hmm. uh, but i'm not sure um, how much um uh, it has achieved what it sought out to achieve right um, how much research has come out of it how much was uh, how much of it was so valuable to change the world all those things the jury is still out on all those things so um, microsoft is is a different uh, i think company than facebook is yeah. right um so uh, these are this they began with different visions i think yeah. about research itself mm-hmm. You were also talking earlier about how people take the technology and use it independent of what its original purpose yeah. was for. Have you also yeah. seen technology that was designed in a way um, that prevented people from um, using it differently or um, something like that? Where, oh. you, where you would see the actual product features inhibiting um, the um, people exercising their agency on the product? yeah uh, i think uh, technology um, comes with constraints right uh, there is no technology that um, uh, it is anyway the, the the format of technology is limited you know whatever it is whatever be it right um, if you look at skype for example right um, skype affords certain things say if you if you if you talk about the video feature of skype right uh, uh, video video calling has its own problems people don't want to use video calling in in many ways even the affordances which technology kind of believes it gives could be constraining so i think there is no technology that has no constraints right it, it the constraints could come from uh, the design or it could come from some misunderstanding of the technology creators that this is going to afford something mm-hmm. okay so uh, so i i uh, i don't i i would not call um uh, i mean this is this is something that is part of technology so that doesn't bother me as much as uh, how uh, it becomes unaffordable to yeah. people yeah right so that is more important for me access to technology is more important mm-hmm. than uh, how a design could constrict or not constrict yeah. for two reasons mm-hmm. one is uh, whatever be the design people are going to use it the way they want to right depending on their own life chances their own affordability so on and so forth right uh, I, um, so I, i i don't know they work people are very smart to work within constraints of something this is yes. what i learned yeah. when i worked in low resource settings right the for me the the, the biggest learning was how people uh, forged things under constraint right so for that doesn't bother me so much anything comes with a constraint so that doesn't bother me so much as uh, making technology unaffordable mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah that probably gives me like uh, for example i'll give you one example um like the mobile internet when it uh, when it started uh, making forays into india uh, slum children slum youth uh, adopted it uh, with great excitement right especially teenagers teenage men basically teenage boys basically and girls could never use teenage girls could never use a mobile internet because they had no money of their own right mm-hmm. whereas the uh, the boys somehow found part time work part time jobs and 
somehow fed their own um, uh, hunger to use the mobile internet and families would give pocket money to boys rather than girls right because they have to apportion their little money right yeah. so where is the uh, constraint here it's not the constraint of technology right hmm. it's a social constraint that stops uh, uh, teenaged girls from using the mobile internet okay so um, that is how i think we position technology constrained into a social uh, probably a social process or a social system to understand what the constraints are maybe so no? do you do you see this kind of conversation happening inside businesses as well uh, yes i think um, american companies are really good at Uh, having these conversations you know yeah. um which um, i wish uh, the indian uh, uh, ecosystem allowed that but it's happening there are more design uh, design companies coming in india that are uh, partnering with um, with uh, other companies and i see uh, the tata the big one of the biggest conglomerates in india have an entire um stream a business stream around design mm-hmm. then you have godrej that has a design and an innovation lab so things are happening in india but uh, there is still some uh, some barriers to kind of coming all out and talking to anthropologists yeah. you know mm-hmm. uh, i think there is still some shyness or some kind of misunderstanding about employing anthropologists i feel if you if you take that route that you know a company's um, main purpose is to offer a product that they invest money in building so then you should be able to pay for it to have access to it but then if technology mm-hmm. is such a key um, cornerstone of 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 the way we live our lives how would you put these two things together let's say yeah. you are, you are talking a lot about mobile technology right so if you have yeah. a strong player of mobile technology in india that that is preoccupied with the democratization of access uh-huh. that in okay. that particular situation that you were mentioning earlier with with women in slums they would want to offer access yeah. to mobile technology to everybody because it's part of their yeah. vision or it's even part of mm. their ethical concerns mm. around their role in society okay. right yeah yeah Okay yeah i get your point um uh i you know india is a is a is a peculiar market right it's filled with social segments uh, uh, and you have a multiplicity of affordances mm-hmm. right it's it's a extremely complex society not only uh, socio economically also culturally yes uh, religion caste you know lifestyles right um uh, i i'm not sure um you know how the the discourse of ethics um uh, you know fits into uh, 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 the market strategies for companies right um and i maybe i'm a little naive here but i would like to believe um that um, uh, the, the the more evolved a company is say like tatas right mm-hmm. yes uh, they can afford to be ethical Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they are com- because they have the wherewithal to be ethical and look at, uh, say, access yes. as something which is which which is more um, in the uh, lies in the domain of ethics than in marketing or yes. uh, business strategy. Yeah. Right. Uh, but what about see? But telecom providers they are the last mile connectors, right? In India, see, telecom providers are waging a huge war, a huge um, war to get market segments. the margins are so low the volumes are high and the margins are low right because you're selling you have to sell millions of um, internet uh, prepaid cards to make that um, to make that profit 
right so the price was a uh, was very intense right mm-hmm. uh, and the marketing strategies are uh, so dynamic you know where is the time to think about ethics <laughs> for them uh, for them uh, what is important is reach what is important is how many uh, subscribers they can ensnare through affordance right so it is interesting how uh, affordance is built into these strategies without even uh, um, consciously thinking about ethics and reach mm. right because yes. the whole telecom war about affordance has yeah. pushed prices down yes. has made strategies to get these uh, customers yeah. so you have two things here one is uh, the company that can afford to think about ethics and uh, the market which pushes yes, exactly. uh, reach and affordability Um yeah. I I was thinking as you were talking about you know there's a lot of um discussions now um that I know of in Europe and even here in New Zealand around corporate social responsibility you know yeah. and, and and companies especially big companies that dominate markets I was even thinking like this topic of ethics and could be something that could be explored within that practice of corporate social responsibility Uh so um so the question is uh, how do people fit ethics into their csr yes yeah see that, that's uh, you know um, again we are on very murky and slippery terrain when you talk about ethics right in corporate um uh, probably my my um, my 90s training is catching up with me <laughs> <laughs> you know see um, uh, ethics i mean ethics is also a function of um that particular moment um in a country in a in a in a business culture uh, and the position that probably that company holds at that time right um if you look at uh, india as an outsourced destination right uh, what what there is i i don't know i worked for companies that were running bpos and stuff like that you know mm-hmm. when you when you go into these offices of course uh, these offices have brought in the multinational uh, culture Yes. into bangalore and other cities and sometimes even smaller cities in india hiring people but the terms in which they hire indians you know is so different from the terms in which they would hire people back in their own homes right so uh, already there is this whole uh, uh, diversification of your own ethics right so uh, ethics is it's so much a function of the kind of business you are doing in a country right and i think it is it is completely filtered through the eyes of market strategy right it is it completely uh, is is in sync with the market strategy of the company you know if if everything is hunky dory fine right if if things are not hunky dory where is ethics how are you going to fit in ethics here yeah. you know so i am i am very suspicious of using the word ethics into csr csr comes out of compulsion csr sometimes comes out of force mm-hmm. you know indian company indian government forces certain big companies to do csr yes. in certain ways to go to rural to rural areas and spread telecom if they want to yeah. uh, spread in the urban areas and things like that you know mm-hmm. so ethics is a function of circumstance moments and so many other things you know i don't think it stands it's a stand alone kind of strategy 
my point of start was in the world was a small country in Eastern Europe called Romania. And my, I started my career in the corporate sector in a multinational in Romania after the fall uh -huh. of communism. So uh -huh. um, when the multinational system came to Romania, we, we embraced it as something that was, you know, was going to bring everything that we didn't have um, and is going to teach us mm -hmm. how to do things better. But what I've also seen in Romania is that the, um, these companies managed to um, have such a strong influence in the, in the market because they are dominant there. Um, mm -hmm. And when the government comes or other organizations from the European Union and tells them you need your CSR policy to be like that, mm -hmm. even they direct it, but, but somebody needs to do it. Yes, yes, yes. You know, uh, uh, what he was saying got me thinking, you know, ethics, if you look at um, if sometimes uh, your uh, market tells you certain things to do certain things, mm -hmm. which which could it could tell you to include women yeah. in your in your outreach, yes. in your uh, probably marketing strategies, in the way you design technologies, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So essentially, these uh, these so-called ethical concerns don't come from an engagement with ethics. It may come from the market. Yes. You know? So uh, for me, probably that would be more powerful. So-called uh, uh, so ethical engagement with your clients is more of a market dictate than from any self-reflexive, yeah. ethical kind of Uh, rumination, mm -hmm. you know, especially so that is, yeah, yeah, especially with big yeah. companies that they have a, a yes. an image to protect and um, yes, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And what you uh, you might call it ethics, that's okay, that's fine, <laughs> right? But it could be a, a strategy uh, simply to bring that access. So it's a form know? of social control, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Would, would that be possible to come also from your users, from the people that use a specific type of technology? Uh, what would uh, come from the users? Um, that type of ethical push, no? So, for example, there is now um, in the world of YouTube, uh, you know, this scandal with that, ah, that famous yes, yes. A vlogger, right, that went to Japan. Ah, um, Dubai. Mm. Yes, um, that went to Japan and he, he, he filmed himself in that forest where people um, go and commit suicide. Um, and he shot while he was talking in a very kind of sarcastic, funny way about uh -huh. that, that situation. There was a guy oh. behind him that was Hank, um, was dead, no? And he, uh -huh. and he showed okay. that in his video and that brought, brought um, a huge outcry from the audience of YouTube um, that YouTube needs to do something yes. about it, you know? Be ah, yes, yes, yes. This is a great example. You know, uh, the, there, uh, the, the user engagement, see, YouTube has left it so open. Mm -hmm. It has very poor censorship policies, right? Unless mm -hmm. somebody is raising a flag, they don't censor things, isn't it? But YouTube is also a space which, uh, which kind of um, self-adjusts. Right. If this if this user is callous, he definitely uh, pisses off a lot of other people. Right. So there is some kind of an equilibrium in a free space on the Internet. But uh, it is also a dangerous space. Right. Yeah. Uh, it has two sides. One is being self-adjusting and the other is the harm is already done. Right. So so there it's a, it's a, it's a space which is highly emotive highly unregulated and we hope uh, that some self-regulation policies work, right? Uh, the other I, uh, uh, thing I wanted to, the other example I wanted to draw your attention to is uh, this big uh, YouTube star PewDiePie. 
right mm-hmm. so yeah. he he suddenly went ballistic and started uh, uh, making anti-semitic kind of uh, statements and yes. stuff like that yes. right mm-hmm. and then it was so interesting uh, youtube had to respond because many of its uh, advertisers mm-hmm. took offense took yeah. offense yeah. to pewdiepie so they had to ban him right so where is this coming from where is this kind of regulation coming from mm. right it's a very different right? yeah it's a very different kind of regulation yeah. because uh, certain people were offended not because they were ethical and they wanted to clean up yeah. the uh, the user the uh, the user engagement on uh, the internet right it comes they, from a different space yeah they disturb you the know? power um that yes. that have hold on that particular um, yes. provider right i was yes. i was wondering um a few weeks ago what would take for twitter to ban trump you know <laughs> who to, who to ban trump yeah who? for twitter you know because twitter is his ah, is, is it's yes, his yes, fav- yes. his favorite channel of engagement <laughs> and i was wondering what can donald trump do <laughs> that could get twitter to ban him or is it even possible for twitter <laughs> to ban donald trump you know <laughs> uh, i i think i think donald trump is driving a lot of twitter business twitter was in trouble <laughs> some time ago remember yeah it wasn't some time ago totally yeah um, yes i i think if twitter would ban uh, donald trump if if uh, more than half of its user base turns against him you know it, it's, it's it's only going to be a, a sharp business decision it's not going to be a decision based on emotion or uh, or some kind of philosophy yeah no? so that yeah. based on a decision <laughs> so wouldn't you say that it's a kind of like an ethics by proxy right because uh, you're kind uh, of driven to be ethical by by market motivation but it still happens yes 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 of course of course mm. because um, you know if uh, ethics comes comes through the back door yeah, you know yeah if, yeah uh, exactly if, if, if donald trump really pisses off the twitter twitterati right right mm-hmm. they on some ethical or a moral whatever maybe that issue gains a moral momentum right so ethics is very much a part of life whether it's for real fake whatever it is it guides so many of our actions right mm-hmm. so it's going to come through the back door yeah so so i, I, I so it, these things you can't separate sometimes it's very difficult to separate business from life yes. from the life of its users yeah no so if 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 they if if, if uh, say 70% of the twitter population demand this ban twitter will have to do it right so for me so ethics sometimes cannot be separated from certain things you can't separate ethics as one domain and see if it's going to influence another domain you know that is the world we live in yeah. you know that is probably it's it's good and a bad thing where you are unable to compartmentalize comfortably certain things which we are happily able to do in the 80s Hmm. Uh, probably not because that we were clever or something because we just we we, we just had that discourse you know yeah. and now it's things have come to disrupt all these compartmentalizations it yeah. becomes so difficult to separate something as ethics and something as not hmm. when when given given a say a, a normal business climate right uh, the company has to be careful yeah. how how it treads on hmm. the toes right it can't do whatever it wants yeah. there are certain constraints within which a company has to work especially when the climate is competitive yes yes so as as anthropologists kind of have that um 
ability to reveal the complexity of uh, uh, of that type of situation. Um, I was uh -huh. wondering, how do you, as an anthropologist working for a business, once you reveal this com complex set of interactions, how do you help them make it actionable? Ah, yes. That is, uh, you know, um, this actionable is the... F, <laughs> F bomb, yeah, you know, yeah. the M bomb or whatever, yeah. you know, because um, uh, I can I can be this brilliant anthropologist who has brilliant insights about what a company is doing. Mm. Right. Um, that is that that my training gives me those skills. Yes. Okay. But uh, when I'm an industry anthropologist, unless I translate these insights, it's not going yes. to work at all. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And for me, actionable is a very much a function of the boardroom meeting. Right? Uh, how, how do you draw your colleagues mm. into a discussion about self reflecting your own company policies? Yes, right? Uh, uh, walking them through the logic of what their strategy has produced, how they are alienating users, yeah. how they are alienating their own probably stockholders or whoever, whoever are the beneficiaries of that company, right? So I, I need to be articulate. I need to show them evidence. I need to put some kind of pressure on them, whether it's moral or business or whatever, right? Yeah. And I need to engage my colleagues into this discussion, mm. right? So apart from just being a good anthropologist, I have to be all of these, these superhuman person, yeah, right? So that is where, uh, so it depends, you know, uh, also it depends on the company, right? If the company is, uh, is uh, it depends on the stage in which the company is, how big the company is, how, uh, what is their go-to-market strategy, uh, how uh, nimble they are, mm. right? So for me, the, the actionable item is such a problematic term. Mm. Right? And it makes the anthropologist's job that much more frightening as exciting, I yeah. think. Yes. You know, so it calls all kinds of other talents to bear upon mm. uh, the anthropologist apart from he or she being a great anthropologist. From your experience working with businesses in India, who would you say ah. is the department that most kind of inside a company that most links with um, anthropology? I think Tata, Tata, Godrej, um, the uh, parts of this, there is this, uh, Tata and Godrej are really uh, cluing in. And there is this company called Future Ideas, uh, which has a chain of department stores and retail business they are uh, they are really into uh, into um, understanding the meaning of selling and meaning of their buyers and clients so it is it is not it is uh, quite it's looking up i think these are uh, companies that are really cluing into it you know these are companies that have uh, 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 say fmcg and 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 uh, a certain kind of businesses with India, yeah. product companies and stuff like that, yeah. you know, they are really cluing into these things. Mm -hmm. Part of our listeners are also businesses. If you would, would have a recommendation for them on how to approach bringing anthropology into the business, um, what would uh -huh. that be? How would you advise them? Yes. Yeah. I, I think the first thing I would do is um, may, may, uh, say there is a there is a product team and there is a product manager in the team. Right. Mm -hmm. I would say uh, once every month, you know, this entire team has to get out of office. 
and then go to those areas where their products are really being deployed, used, or look at their supply chaining, have a real field, uh, ground up view of how their businesses span out. Mm-hmm. You know, that is that is the beginning. Just get out of your offices. Yeah. Go, uh, go to go outside of your offices and learn those things and bring it back to your office. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to. Sh- you have to shake up these people who are inside a glass house. Yes. <laughs> For me, that was very difficult moving from business to anthropology, understanding that that part of the truth uh-huh. is not in my head; it's outside. And you know, uh-huh. giving, yes. giving that power and agency to the context to tell you what it is, rather than relying. 100% on your interpretation of what you think you see, you know? And and I think yeah. as much as anthropology also conditions to a certain extent the anthropologist to not intervene, the business field mm. conditions the person in product or marketing to think that they own the truth, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, Correct. it's Correct. there in the meeting room, is there in the glass room, is there in yes. their heads, right? And they are yeah. smart when they are able to see it. And then the outside world is just a test. It's it's not yeah, well, it's, yeah it's not a place where you go looking for the truth is a, is a place where you kind of test the validity of something that you've already you know thought through that's, yes that's where I think they should get higher people that who are not like them mm-hmm. you know uh, people who don't think like them yeah so you have that is, that that is why uh, companies are also yes I mean one is professional diversity and also segment. The population diversity they have, right? Mm-hmm. That is why people are pushing. Yeah. And you have so many hostility towards diversity uh, measures, right? There's so much of hostility also there. Mm-hmm. The question of merit and other things come into play, right? So, but, but we can begin by uh, by hiring people who are not like you. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, and then believe. And that, that, uh, you have to change your thinking for that. Yeah. Right? Where's that going to come from? Yeah. How so, do you learn? Yeah. Right? So going outside, outside once a month is a is a good starting point. <laughs> and Nimi, I mean, I mean yeah. yeah. Well, one last question, um, okay. because also part of our listeners might be students um, of anthropology that are now considering um, going outside of the academic sector um, and exploring working for businesses. So why, I was wondering, based on your own experience of you know moving into the applied field. Um, what what advice would you give them to kind of figure out, is this for me? Is this not for me? Uh, anthropology? Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, uh, there are, uh, just to simplify the argument, um, I have trained many uh, interns and research associates who, who have worked for me. Uh, I feel there are two kinds of students, uh-huh. to make it simplistically. Students who don't want to interact, right, with others. So uh, I would suggest anthropology is not for everybody. Anthropology, ethnography is not for everybody. I think you should not force anthropology down the throats of people, of students who don't want to be part of it. They are people who, who don't want to do with people, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you exercise care. Don't think that anthropology is something universal and you have to go uh, all out ballistic, in converting everybody, <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. You know, uh, uh, size up your students. Size up students who uh, who are somewhere in the middle. You know, who are kind of um, uh, you know uh, uh, experimenting with mm-hmm. anthropology. That is the group you can influence. Mm. You know, by telling them that this is this is going to enrich your life. 
Yeah. You know, this is going to make you a person who can fit very well yeah. wherever you want to go yeah. work. You what, know, tie it up something useful. Yeah. What, what about an applied anthropology? So let's say I've just finished my master research degree and I'm considering going into a PhD or working in the industry. Or I finished okay. my PhD and I don't have a position um, at the university. Uh-huh. So I have to do okay. something to make money, right? And I'm considering uh-huh. industry. So... For those kind of people that are kind of figuring out where would they sit with anthropology, um, academic mm-hmm. path or non-academic path, uh, what would you say to them? Yeah. Um, yes, I think uh, going to industry is um, is something that is going to reward you immediately, right? Mm-hmm. The rewards are immediate, and you can have you can. You can kind of have that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling that you're putting <laughs> your 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 training to use, mm-hmm. right? And you're actually shaping um, certain uh, thoughts, certain strategies, so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think I, I would advise a master student to go out into the world first, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or even a PhD student, go out into the world, get out of that academia, you know, again, if you're going back to academia, you're, you're staying in the same place, right? You too need that diversity, right? Mm. Academicians also need that diversity. I think they should get out into the world, you know, <laughs> first, and then go back to academia if they want to, you know? Mm. <laughs> this has been a pleasure. But um, another thing that we want to say before we end this is um, if you have any, um, any information that we can post um, about your work for our listeners that might be interested to understand better um, the type of work that you do, then we're going to link it below the um, episode. Yeah, sure. I have no problem at all. In fact, I upload my my papers on um, ResearchGate and yeah. Edu and all that. So I have no problem with that at all. Um, and uh, I have no propriety inclinations towards my work. <laughs> <laughs> so you can do that happily. And I want to thank you all for uh, inviting me to this podcast. You know, it was it was so wonderful um, listening to you, listening and responding to your questions. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.